G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host RD. Today, today is Tuesday, the 3rd of October and our topics this week are... Are self-serve checkouts getting out of hand? The answer to that question will be revealed shortly. And the Victorian Greens are pushing for a grocery price freeze. Both of these topics about supermarkets. That is not a coincidence. Of course, then we have our <laughs> two, two digs town talk. And then we'll jump into this week in Australian history with our deet. And we'll finish off, as always, with our Forex bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, let's catch up in the last week. Uh, Deke, what's been going on with you? How are you today? Oh, going pretty well, DK. Uh, ducklings and Legos are the two things I wanted to talk about. I had uh, a post on the r slash Australian subreddit. We get uh, about ducklings that we got on our place. Normally around this time of year, we get a few families of ducklings. I think I might have mentioned before, we call the first... Uh, family that arrives they're always called the duckingtons and then the, <laughs> the second family is always called the quackleys and, then we, and got, they feud they have a furious feud between them yeah, that's right that's and we have i don't know whether it was something seasonal or something odd but we only had one uh family up until just the other day and that was they were sort of fairly developed ducklings that came along but then it, normally we have a brood they've got a brood of about um you know somewhere between five to to nine but i looked out in the grass from the kitchen the other day i thought bloody hell that's just a monster collection of of ducklings i sort of looked around i could only see you know one duck one one drake i counted 34 bloody ducklings in this brood with the two of them. Wow. And I, I thought, surely I'm missing something. As I was going out on, out of the driveway in the car the other day, they were all coming uh, along for a feed. So I stopped the car because they don't seem to get spooked as much by the car. They don't seem to understand it. So it doesn't look like a person. So I turned the engine off, um, was able to do a little bit of videoing, which is what I posted uh, for the poster environment uh, Monday that we do on the subreddit. And paused it and counted 37 ducklings, but noticed too that there was different sizes. So speculation is that it was a merger of a couple of families. But even if it's a merger of a couple, that's an absolute shirtload of ducklings for two to be looking after them. But they all seem to be quite happy trotting along. So yeah, if you want to see that video, go get in the... Um, uh, r slash Australian subreddit and just do a search on on ducklings. You'll see it. So, yeah, that was – and it's always cute, you know. They're, they're little wood ducks, little fluffy wood ducks. But the other one, the, the Lego thing, um, I, I was speaking to the, the bloke because I ordered my wine uh, online uh, – or not online, through the wine collector. So I've got a bloke that regularly calls up and so you know, he's got all the profile and knows what I like and blah, blah, blah. He had a, a bit of a holiday and with his, his son, and I asked him about it. He said, oh, we went kayaking. He said, oh, my son's mad about Lego, which, you know, I, I'm not really sort of into Lego, but people with kids and that, I understand that it's a, 
it's a real thing. But the thing that I thought was interesting that I wanted to share with you and the the listeners was apparently Lego have uh, it's like a grab bag lucky dip um, Marvel oriented uh, release of kits at the moment where apparently you don't know what's actually in them. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah. Apparently they've done this. Uh, apparently three times. Sometimes I think when apparently it sounds like bullshit, but uh, according to him, who's his son's a Lego expert, they've done this a couple of times before. The first time was in uh, plastic, but people were sort of feeling it to try and determine what the pieces. Yes, were. I, I do remember that. Oh, you you could, remember? Yeah, you could kind of figure out what was inside based on the sort of the shape and, and that sort of stuff of it. So. Ah, okay. And then they went to uh, put them in boxes and he said in the store at the back behind these packets, uh, you could see where people sort of tried to gouge open the packets to see what was in the, the boxes. Oh. But here's the clever bit that I I loved this. Uh there's a YouTuber who's, you know, Lego's his his thing. He bought all the uh, the the packets or enough packets so that he could get one of every one of the the special um, lucky dip ones or whatever you call them. I'm sure there's an official name. But what he did was weighed every one of them down to the gram. So idea. this guy. And his son, his son's mate had bought uh, just bought a ten dollar scale from Amazon, and he said they were in the store weighing all the packages until they got the kit that they wanted to get. Went home, opened it up, everything was exactly correct. You know, he'd bought a couple. His son had bought you know five, and I thought, what a clever little workaround! Bring your scale in, weigh it, and beat the system. That was a classic. I thought. <laughs> I remember when my kid, he was uh, my my eldest son was really little, uh, like two three years old. He was obsessed with Thomas the Tank Engine, and uh, he there was a, um, a sort of same sort of thing like a Lucky Dip, where it was these mini trains. They were sort of uh, I don't know, maybe an inch long, little mini trains uh and it was they were all like a lucky dip thing and there was all these rare ones and it was a whole thing for a while and what we'd realized was the barcodes were all the same but on the back of the of the bag and you couldn't see through the bag and they were all roughly the same sort of shape so it was very hard to feel and I realized and I said to my wife, oh, on the back of the in like micro print was a like a serial number if we could figure out what these numbers were then we could figure out what trains to get and all this kind of stuff um because there was nothing more devastating to a three-year-old than getting the same train twice so at least initially we were just making sure that the numbers were different so we were getting different ones because we didn't really care specifically about certain certain trains and things like that then my wife actually found someone again similar thing online had gone through bought them all found them all opened them all up had all the ones all the rare ones all this sort of stuff um and so then we were we were hunting for these for these numbers so that we could buy these specific rare trains and all this kind of stuff um and he he thought it was great and he loved it. Um, obviously now I don't even know where those trains are. They're probably in a box somewhere, oh. uh, forgotten and no longer cared about. Um, <laughs> a lot of work for uh, 
for a temporary uh, enjoyment, but it was a bit of fun. So I, I get that. Um, yeah. Yeah. What about you? What have you been up to this week? This week is just been a blur. Uh, the the highlight of this week was definitely the uh, grand final weekend, uh, which for our Ooh. international listeners is both the grand final of the AFL, the Australian Football League, and the NRL, the National Football League. Uh, and I... And those things are different, I can assure you. They're different codes. Uh, And I don't really watch AFL that much anymore. I used to back in the day, but the Brisbane Lions uh, was... And I think they're the only Queensland team in the AFL, now that I think about it. Uh, They were in the final against Collingwood. And it was a big deal because they haven't been in the final, I don't think, since like early... 2000s, I want to say 2003, 2004, something like that. Uh, and it was a very close match, but they oh, did lose. It was, wasn't it? It was a very close match. It was a ripper of a match. It was very exciting, and I'm very sad. Again, not that I specifically barrack for any team, but if I'm going to go, it'd be the Lions. I, I do have a beanie, a Lions beanie, that I bought when I was watching a game a few years ago. So I was pretty upset that they lost, but... Man, what a game. And then on Sunday was the NRL Grand Final. Uh, Brisbane Broncos. So Brisbane once again versus the Penrith Panthers. And it looked like the Broncos were going to absolutely wipe the floor with them. But I'll tell you what, some sort of miracle happened. I don't know. <laughs> because oh, the. It was a good. I watched it too. I'm like you. I'm not a big, uh, not a big watcher of them, but I do watch the grand finals. And it was just a ripper of a game. I could not believe the comeback that happened. Uh, and Penrith won. Uh, so, Bron- uh, so Brisbane is a double loser, basically. <laughs> Uh, and that, that hurts, that stings, you know? Um, yeah, so but was- it would, it would be more of a sting if you, if like in both games, I thought, um, I thought Br- Brisbane in both games were beaten. They didn't lose them. Yes. They played really, really well. Yep. Um, and you know you, you got to take you. You're right. I think it's good if you're going to lose a game, especially a match like that grand final, um, to have it so close in both games really shows you the the skill level and and level of um, level of expertise and 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 enthusiasm and passion and you know all that stuff. So um, it does hurt, but I think next year. Uh, I, I mean, I can only talk about the NRL because I actually watched that. But next year, I think the Broncos, if they can keep up the, if they can bring the heat like they did this year, I think they'll be quite the force to be reckoned with. Which because they do have a very young team, so I think that's got mm. going for them. But um, it was also a big deal for the Panthers because this was their third. Uh, premiership that they've won so three in a row three years in a row um and that hasn't happened for i think like 40 years or something like that so that's a big deal just in in history as well so good on him um 
and I drank way too much beer as a result. So, <laughs> so I'm, I've, I'm recovering. I've recovered, <laughs> recovering from uh, the, the the whole situation. And I I went down to Coles this morning, and I'm not happy about self serve checkouts. So let's move on to that. Okay. <laughs> uh, the question is: the topic is: Are self serve checkouts getting out of hand? I think the answer to that question is yes. But let's let's have a think about this. When we go shopping, we all want a hassle free. Uh, experience we don't want it to be difficult that's where self-serve checkouts come into it they are meant to save us time they're meant to make our shopping experience more efficient easier stress-free is that what's really happening (laughs) so let's start with some scary information the average Woolworths has 62 CCTV cameras throughout the store. 62. It's a lot more than probably you realize. Wow. Each self-serve checkout has between six and eight cameras along with an overhead camera with an AI algorithm determining whether or not you've actually purchased the correct products and that they've been scanned properly. So we'll, we'll come back to that, the AI thing in a minute. Some stores are also trialing activity tracking sensors to detect when a shopper has paid to open an exit gate. This is primarily in Coles. We've seen this. So you can't, when you're going through the self-serve checkout area, there will be a gate that's closed and it'll only open once you've paid and it knows that you've paid because it's monitoring you at the checkout and it knows your face because they facial scan, facial recognition, and all that sort of stuff. They've also had some sort of trialing stock monitoring cameras, which are mounted to the underside of shelves. So they're watching the products, the produce on the store shelf to make sure that... I don't necessarily have a problem with that because it is more of like an inventory thing. Mm. Uh, however, the a spokesperson for Woolworths has confirmed that stock monitoring cameras do silhouette out customers or staff. So they're not specifically looking for people in that case. Uh, and the self-serve checkouts do blur faces. Well, so they say. Oh. And they black out the pin pads for the cards stuff. But again, we're just taking them at their word. The spokesman said that the sensors and stock monitoring cameras are part of a number of initiatives, both covert and overt, to minimize instances of retail crime. You're going to hear this a lot. The retail crime, they're stopping shoplifting. It's not for them to watch you. It's them to protect their products. Coles, meanwhile at Coles, a number of stores have actually completely eliminated checkout operators altogether. I couldn't find if Woolworths was doing this at this point in time, but you can imagine what one does, the other basically does as well. Uh, So at these Coles, you check yourself out or you don't shop there at all, I guess. Um, That's interesting that they've actually got some stores where there's no um, uh, checkout, like like person. Uh, What do you... I always think of checkout chick. Oh, that's old. 
Um, yeah, <laughs> old old thing. But the the person behind the the checkout, it's interesting. They got rid of some of them. Yeah, I yeah. Look, this has had a mixed reaction from customers as well, uh, and overall, it's been largely negative. Some customers even describing being sick and tired of doing Cole's work for them. Of course, some people prefer the self-checkouts. And personally, of course, I do use them, especially if I've only got a few things there, I'm more convenient. But when I do have a large week's worth of shopping, um, it's not where I want to be. Or if you've got bulky items, like if you're buying slabs of water or maybe a big slab of dog food or something like that, it can be really frustrating trying to deal with the self-serve checkout because you do have to put it on the scales and all that kind of stuff. Um, Whereas if you go through the regular checkout, the person can see it, they'll scan it, you don't need to get it out. It's very frustrating. On Twitter, a Woolworths customer argued that the security measures put in place to prevent theft were causing more harm than good. They felt that Woolworths should have more staff members available to help out with self-serve checkouts or simply trust that any groceries left in the trolley were from elsewhere. So this isn't something that I've specifically encountered myself, but apparently at Woolworths, if you've got stuff in your trolley, the AI system that I mentioned earlier, there's a camera actually above you, directly above you, and it's watching you scan everything. And if it sees that you've got things in your trolley, it will have a pop-up. It will not let you proceed to payment until the person has come over to clear it to ensure that you're not trying to steal those things in your trolley. Hmm. Mm. This has been argued that it causes these new security measures, because this is relatively new. It's only come out in the last few months. Uh, This has been causing undue stress for both employees and customers. And the staff are constantly running around to assist customers with self-serve checkouts. And of course, as we've all seen, there's only ever one person there and they're stretched thin. Um, (laughs) And that's not really an efficient use of employees' time or our time as well, having to wait. Um, Instead of providing a quick and easy checkout experience, it's leading to longer wait times and causing unnecessary frustration for everyone involved. Both major supermarkets say that shoplifting is on the rise and that these security measures are in place to protect the staff and their product. However... Coles and Woolworths have announced profits, drumroll please, of $1.09 billion for Coles and $1.6 billion for Woolworths. So clearly their bottom line isn't majorly impacted by this so-called wave of crime and shoplifting that's happening in these stores. I really hate this. This is very dystopian. And I actually, whilst I do shop at Coles, I prefer to shop at like Aldi and some of the smaller local retailers because I just don't like this sort of stuff. Adit, I feel like you're probably in a similar boat as myself, but what do you think about this whole thing? Yeah, look, I've, I, the, there's, a, there's a few things. Look, my uh, get out of the way, I think uh, Coles and uh, Woolies, uh, predominantly enjoy a, a, a government-assisted oligopoly in some uh, ways. You know, competition, uh, land zoning, planning, uh, the preferences they we saw they were given through things like the the pandemic, uh, 
laws that are put in that they can comply with, but it makes it very difficult for smaller um, competitors to comply with. All those sorts of things. That's how I tend to feel about them. Them overall, I uh, well, let's let's break down to a couple of things. First, self serve checkouts. I like them. I like them. For, I liked them from the word go. When I do my um, big monthly shop, because we do, we have a uh, like we're with, we're under the Woolies. Uh, like I've, a, a long time ago, I gave up trying to. Uh, I accepted that through credit card or whatever, they're going to know what I'm, I'm getting and linking it back to me. Um, and if they want to know that I'm getting, you know fat-free yogurt and something, well, good good luck to them. But we're with the uh, – our we've got Woolies and Coles locally, but I prefer the, the Woolies one there. We're with a uh, their whatever is the worst rewards thing, which means that one shop a month you get uh, 10% <clears throat> excuse me, off the shop. I think it's something like 70 bucks a year to be a member. But uh, what we do is – on our shopping list, we put we build up a whole list of things that are just going to be in the the monthly big shop, uh, so that we go down and you know, crack it for ten percent on our a big shop of all the stuff that we need. I put that through the self serve register, and I make sure that I uh, preferably get one near the corner so that I can put things onto the scale, or not onto the scale, but onto the side thing. And then when I'm finished, just move that off, put it onto the, the floor in its bag, cycle everything through there, pay, and then load the, the trolley back up. I tend to like doing those self-serve myself because uh, I like to put things into bags in particular orders so that when I know when I get home, I can just take them out. They go into particular places in the cupboard. The frozen stuff or the um, fridge stuff is all together. So when I can get in the when I get in the car, I can just chuck it in the the, the esky. So I suppose I've got my little system there, and I like being able to do that rather than trying to get somebody to, you know, do that do that for me. Uh, do you think just on that? Do you yeah. think you would, if Woolies stopped allowing you to take stuff off the scales and once it's bagged up? And put it down to the side. Do you think you'd stop using the self serve checker? Well, I don't see how you could do that because then you wouldn't fit. You couldn't you physically couldn't fit all your shopping onto the thing on the side. It doesn't have to make sense. <laughs> These guys. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. In, in that hypothetical, if I had to try and fit all my shopping onto the side, well. Um, yeah, well, I don't know what I would do as an alternative, but I just don't quite see how that would work. The yeah, reason I, I say that is because yeah. I know the the Woolworths locally here, and I know not all stores are different. They are trialing things in different areas and stuff like that. When I've done that and taken it off, the machine has a fit, and it's like, Nah, you've taken stuff off. You can't do this, and I have to get the person over to come and clear it. And they have to check the bags, and then they have to punch the thing in, and it's it's a whole thing. It's not as easy as. Don't you just oh, click? Don't you just press the skip bagging? You can only do that for two items. Oh, is that right? You can only do it for two items, and more than that, 
signals the person has to come over. So what happens? So if you've got, say, you've got, uh, well, let's say you've got four bags of four bags worth of of items, and the scales can only fit on two. If you fill up your two bags, then before you proceed further, you take those two bags off and put them on the floor. Does the machine uh, spit the dummy? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So that's weird. That's why I say that. I don't know if this is something that's just up here in Queensland and maybe they've realized it's not working and they're going to get rid of it or they're going to change it. But uh, my last experience of doing this, which actually I don't shop at Woolies that often um, and partially because of this, because of yeah. how they were doing it. And it was just very frustrating that that I'm trying to, I feel like I'm fighting the self-serve checkout. Um, I don't know if it's changed since it may have because it's been probably a few months since I've uh, done like a big shop at, at Woolies that I've had to, you know, move bags and things around and all that sort of stuff. Mm. We, I also buy fresh bread and I don't like putting it in a bag. I like having it so I can keep it nice and, you know, not squashed. Yep. So I never like to bag that. And again, if you buy a couple of loaves of bread, suddenly your quota for skipping items is is done. And the machine doesn't like that either, so. Uh, that's it. That's interesting. I haven't run into that and I've been I've been taking items off the, the little scale on the thing for like ages. Um ages, what yeah, at least at least a couple of years. Um hmm. All right, I'm a bit puzzled by that. Uh, Sorry, uh, I, cut, I cut you off before. What was the other thing you were going to mention? Yeah, I, I know. Just uh, just coming back to uh, what are we? Oh, that's right. Yeah, my experience, my my personal experience. Right, my, my little rant about the government oligopoly. My personal experience on the uh, self serve checkouts, the monitoring and the principle of it. The principle of saying we want to stop. Uh, stock theft I don't have any issue with um, can feel how we uh, feel about Colesworth as they get described uh, quite often in the discussions we have on online to me it doesn't just justify uh, theft I think uh, there's probably an increase in theft because of the cost of living problems that so many um well, so many of us are facing in different aspects of our lives, and for some people too, it's particularly on something like the the basic food items, which to me is a separate issue that is not addressed by well, I'll just go and steal it from um from from Colesworth. I can get them. I can get the thinking there, um, and it surprises me how many people say, well, they're making heaps of money. What's it matter if people are taking stuff from them? I think it's a poor, uh, I think it's a poor road to go down, and I think the principle of preventing stock, you know, your property being stolen, just goes against my my principles. The actual surveillance, the collection of data, the monitoring of people just doesn't sit with me. I get why they're doing it, but. I don't trust that they're blurring out identities. I don't trust anything they're saying. I would cons- I would just say on principle, on, on um, just not on principle, but on uh, just sheer experience, 
they're lying. <laughs> yeah, I'm not basing that on anything, but you get you get big companies, you get big governments, and that when it's things that people are upset about, they'll just lie about it. So I just assume, I just assume that this information is being hoovered up. Uh, they're looking at the expressions on people's faces. They're making judgments about how people walk, how quickly they're they're doing, what they're wearing, what order they're getting the items, what items they're choosing first, which are the prime positions. I mean, supermarkets uh, supermarkets have had a hierarchy hierarchy of positions in the store and on shelves since the year dots, and it's been very manual in the past as a monitoring thing. It's now just getting automated. And to say that they're suddenly going to get concerned about privacy, I think bullshit. There's no, not a chance in hell that you're not sucking up as much data because data is a valuable, um, it's a valuable product. And so, look, I don't trust them and I don't like the surveillance uh, side. You know, is it going to mean that I change... Uh, where I shop for the regular groceries, probably not. Um, but I'm not happy about it. Yeah, I think that's probably the best way to just leave this subject. I could talk about this for ages, but it basically at this point, I'm just having a whinge. Um, yeah, so, so <laughs> no, I don't think anything's going to change. Uh, Unless, like, a government regulation comes in that basically nips it in the butt and, and, and smacks them on the head. Really what they're doing is they're, they're making us do the work so that they can pay less people, stock the shelves more, uh, you know, all the rest of it. It's just a change in their business model. It's good for their business. It's We don't necessarily like it, but at the end of the day, it's Coles and Woolies. Like you said, they... they borderline have a monopoly and what are you going to do shop at iga most people won't um yeah look i do a bit of shopping at iga a bit of shopping at uh at, at audi yeah not a lot of groceries on more of a center aisle bargain thing with with audi and that's the best part of shopping yeah. about. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that can that can be that can be fun. That, that was one point I wanted to make. Uh, somebody had brought this up in uh, one of the threads talking about this. Uh, you hear that uh, headline figure of you know the one point whatever billion, uh, one point four or one point oh four. I can't remember what it was, but that's. Uh, 1.09 billion for Coles and 1.6 for Woolworths. Right, so that's on revenue of about uh, 46 or something billion. So it only works out really as a a 3% return, which is not – which is in percentage terms, that's fairly thin. Now, it's a big number. It's a headline number. But as a percentage uh, of of revenue, you wouldn't exactly say that it's uh, amazing. No, they're not, and and I think this isn't too uncommon with a lot of really big supermarket chains. Their margins are very thin, um, but their business is huge. That's kind of their thing. Uh, Costco is very similar, massive business worldwide, uh, margins very very thin, which is incredible considering uh, you know how huge of a business it is and, and what they're they're 
total operating revenue is. Um, but the simple fact is they pay a lot. Of, they have a lot of stuff. They pay a lot of staff. They have huge expenses uh, for stock, really, and rent and, and insurance and the rest of it. So, um, Coles and Woolies are in a similar similar business, similar sort of situation. But I think what people look at. I just think it's really poor optics, and I think we'll probably go into this a little bit more in our second topic yeah, uh, yeah, with okay. with the the cost of living and that kind of stuff. But it is, you know, I think it's quite poor optics when they're talking about how much people are stealing because they're desperate, and then they sit there going, "Oh, wow, we made all this money!" Like you know, and it's kind of like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, probably, you know. Anyway, let's talk about that in a minute. For now, I think it's time for our Two Ticks Town Talk. And this week, we're going north to the Northern Territory, specifically to the very little town of Hermansburg. It has a population as of the 2022 census of 542 people. 89% of these identify as Aboriginal. Uh, and I think it was it was in the ninety eight percent of people uh, have Aboriginal ancestry, so it's very strong out there, which is really cool. Hermansburg was established on the fourth of June, eighteen seventy seven. Uh, it was a sacred site known as. And actually, before I say any of this, I should say I'm not. The Aboriginal language in this area is a little bit tricky with its phonetics and its pronunciation. So if anyone's listening from this area, I do apologize if I do mispronounce anything. I've tried my best. Uh, I've, I've looked around for a different couple of different sources for, for pronunciations and things like that. So hopefully I do it a bit of justice. If I haven't and you are listening, uh, please let me know. Give me a correction. Happy to, to learn. So... Uh, this this was a sacred site known as Nataria, which was associated with the Andara Ratapa dreaming. It was conceived as an Aboriginal mission by two German Lutheran missionaries, Hermann Kemp and Wilhelm Schutz of of the Hermannsburg missionary missionary in Germany. They travelled overland from Bethany in the Barossa Valley in South Australia all the way up into the Northern Territory. They they named their new mission among the under people after Hermannsburg in Germany where they had trained. So they arrived. (laughs) Seems a bit weird to go from Germany all the way here, uh, especially in 1877. Talk about remote. They arrived with 37 horses, 20 cattle, and nearly 2,000 sheep, five dogs, and some chickens. Construction began on the first building in the late June 1877, made of wood and reed grass. By August, a stockyard, kitchen, and living quarters were also completed. They had nearly no contact with the Aboriginal people of the area in the last few months, although their activities were being observed by said people. At the end of August, a group of 15 Aranda men visited the mission camping near the settlement. Realizing 
that communication was difficult, the missionaries quickly learnt the local Aranda language, which is pretty impressive. A third missionary, Louis Schultz, arrived in Adelaide in October 1877, and he shortly after joined the missionary. He wrote a 54-page dictionary of 1,750 words and published it in 1890. Sorry, I should say, this dictionary was of the local Aranda language. In 1891, the mission actually published an Aranda language book on Christian instruction and worship, containing stories from the Bibles, Psalms, prayers, and 53 hymns. In the same year, the Royal Royal Society of South Australia published Schultz's thesis on the habits and customs of the local Aboriginal people and the geography of the Fink River area, which is pretty cool. So fast forward a few years. Unfortunately, we're going to have to skip a ton of history uh, and a lot of really important people in the the Hermansburg history, uh, but we just simply don't have enough time. So fast forward to the mid-1920s, there was an absolutely terrible drought. Of course, drought in this area isn't something unknown to the region, but this drought was particularly harsh. Water holes had dried up that had never dried up in living history, and the local wildlife basically completely died or migrated away. Uh, And without all the bush tucker, a number of the local Aboriginal people that lived outside the mission came to the mission seeking food and water. What year did you say that was again? Sorry? Uh, Sort of the mid-1920s this happened. So that sort of exacerbated the existing problems inside the mission. At this time, the mission really had a a reasonably stable population of about 100 people. Um, Things went bad to worse during this period, though, as the camel trains that would bring in supplies from uh, Adelaide and further south would come up, but they kept being late due to the camels not having enough food and water on their way north. The further north they got, the worse the drought became, and the camels simply couldn't, couldn't keep the same pace as they had previously. Then there was an outbreak of influenza dysentery and tuberculosis it just kept getting worse and unfortunately those hit the hardest were the young and of course the old but there was an estimated 85 percent of arunda children dying during this drought and a number of young children dying of an otherwise unknown illness turns out that illness was scurvy And once they realized this, they brought in 200 crates of limes, oranges, and lemons on the camel train to help those affected. And the beautiful thing about scurvy is if you are affected by scurvy, which is horrendous, uh, getting some vitamin C through citrus or other means uh, will recover. You'll recover very, very, very quickly. So, um, So that's a small success. The rains came three days after Christmas in 1929. And of course, 
once the rivers swelled, uh, the land recovered reasonably quickly and everything went, quote-unquote, back to normal. Uh, but there was a number of young people growing up in Hermansburg during this horrendous period, one of, one of which, born in July 1902, so rewind a little bit, uh, was a little boy called Ela. He didn't have a last name. That was his custom of his people. Uh, And he lived around the mission with his parents. But in 1905, his parents were baptized in the small church of the mission, and they were given Christian names. Ela became Albert. Albert really enjoyed art. And in 1934, two painters from Melbourne came through the mission looking to paint the landscape. Because around the mission, around Hermansburg, is a number of beautiful mountains, incredibly rugged land, rolling red mountains, cliffs. It's it's absolutely beautiful. This isn't too far from Alice Springs. It's a couple of hundred kilometers from Alice Springs. Um, and Hermansburg is almost like in a valley between these two massive mountain ranges. So a very harsh environment, but very, very beautiful. So when these two painters came in 1934, the young Albert expressed interest in their work and actually offered to be their guide. Turns out Albert was particularly skilled in this artwork, particularly watercolor painting. During his first exhibition in 1938, he needed a last name. He chose Namachajira which was his father's birth name. During during his first exhibition, he sold every single one of his watercolours. Now, I'm going to stop here because Albert Namachadira is an incredible man who lived an incredible life and created some of the most revered artwork in Australia. But... And I could continue talking about him probably for another hour, but the segment actually isn't about him. He is probably the most famous person that was born in the town of Hermansburg and grew up there. And of course, a lot of his original watercolor paintings are from the area around around Hermansburg and the Northern Territory. But I don't want to get too sidetracked. Uh, I, I couldn't not mention him, Ooh. but... This, this segment is really about the town of Hermansburg. So why is Hermansburg so special? Why would I want to talk about Hermansburg if not for Albert Namachajira? Roughly 40 k's up the valley, between the mountains, if you followed the Fink River west, you'll find a peculiar mountain range in the middle of the valley floor. It's perfectly circular. From the ground, doesn't look like anything too much. But from above, it's almost a perfect circle. Adit, do you care to guess what is located roughly 40 kilometers from Hermansburg? Well, it's, if you're saying a perfect circle, I'm going to have to guess a, a meteor strike. Yes. It yes. Is- it yep. is. So it's called Goss's Bluff Crater. Uh, 
or it's also called Norala by the local people. It's an impact crater. The original oh, crater. I'm just looking at. I'm just looking it up now as you said that. Wow, that's very impressive. It's Bloody very hell. impressive. Wow. The original crater was thought to be formed by an impact of an asteroid or comet approximately 142 million years ago. This is very ancient land. And the original crater rim was about 22 kilometers in diameter. It's about 14 miles. Uh, But it's since been eroded away significantly, of course, over 142 million years. The the five-kilometer diameter... a hundred and eighty meter high crater-like feature is now exposed. Is interpreted as the eroded relic of the crater's central uplift. That's why it looks so striking from the sky. Wow! The impact origin of this topographic feature was first proposed in the nineteen sixties, with the strongest evidence coming from the abundance of shatter cones. What are shadow cones, I hear you say? Good question. I'll tell you right now. (laughs) Shadow cones are a rare (laughs) geological feature that are only known to form in the bedrock beneath meteor impact craters or underground nuclear explosions. There are evidence that the rock has been subjected to a shock with pressures in the range of 2 to 30 gigapascals. Does that sound like a lot? I don't know. How about this? 290 <laughs> to 4.3 million PSI. That's a lot of PSI. That's a huge amount. of. Most people understand PSI, at least a little bit. Most truck tires have 40 PSI in it. So you can understand 4.3 million PSI is a lot of, a lot of pressure. <laughs> So, as I said, the site is known as Norala to the to the Aboriginal people of the Western uh, Aranda language group, and it is a sacred place. It is now located in the Norala Conservation Reserve, and a Western Aranda story attributes its origins to a cosmic impact. In the dream time, a group of celestial women were dancing as the star as stars in the Milky Way. One of the women grew tired and placed her baby in a wooden basket, which is called a herna. As the woman continued dancing, the basket fell and plunged into the earth. The baby fell to earth and forced the rock upwards, forming the circular mountain range. The baby's parents, the evening and the morning stars, continue to search for their baby to this day. The Turner can be seen in the sky as the constellation Corona Australis. Hmm. Now, you, you can visit... Uh, Norala today, if you want to. Uh, it can go through Hermansburg, up the valley, towards this magnificent piece of geology, uh, but it is a sacred place, so I can't stress this enough that you must abide by the signs and access the areas using the designated paths. You're also required to have a Northern Territory Parks Pass to access the area. There's not a huge amount of accommodation in Hermansburg, uh, but 
you can visit probably the uh, like really notable thing to visit is uh the the bethlehem lutheran church uh is somewhat famous for for the fact that it's it's still there um and of course the albert namatajira monument uh and there is a uh a school of painting and potters that make ceramic arts there as well. So there is a little bit for tourists to do. Um, most of the people that are going there are to see the birthplace of Albert Namachajira. So. Mm. so there you go. That's Hermansburg, the Northern Territory. And this is such a beautiful example of why I love this segment of the podcast so much because I was just curious earlier this week about impact craters, asteroids uh, that had hit Australia, and if there were any, uh, basically, the craters left uh, that we could go and see. And there is this sort of two that that are good to see, Um, and this is the only one that's really near a town, um, and it's particularly striking when you look at it. And the nearest town is Hermansburg. And I was like, what's Hermansburg? Can we talk about Hermansburg? And I just went down this rabbit hole of this incredible town that birthed an incredible man uh, and has an incredible piece of geology just up the road. So Hermansburg is definitely on the list. Yeah. Yeah, look, that's real. I'm I'm with you. I I find those things so interesting, and I just love the the little journeys that it takes us on. I was just looking at the uh, Corona Australis, and I can what what did you say the um, uh, thing to hold the baby was called? Uh, I'm pronouncing it as a, a Turner T U R N A. Yeah, just just looking at that, and you can see it. It's it's that sort of. Uh, well, now now I'm going to see it as that that Turner, that thing about the morning and evening stars looking for their baby. I mean, God, that's a bit. Uh, yeah, it's a bit bit sort of uh, sad in some ways. You know, it's just that they've fallen out, can't find it. It's that continual searching. But yeah, it's interesting to see that uh, the shape of that formation and how it would be holding holding something in it. And that, bloody hell, that impact crater is massively impressive. Yeah, I'd, I'd suggest if you're having a listen to this, just check up, check out uh, Goss's Bluff Crater. Um, and, yeah, it it would be a destination, I imagine, for a lot. Of, well, God, I'd love to go there. I think it's just see all these things. You think, God, there's another one that I'd like to to go to. <laughs> I got to add it to the list. It, it is that is somewhere I really do want to go. Um, I just it, it's one of these ones that feels like quite a special place. Yeah. Um, and I think it's particularly striking from the air. I, I have seen photographs from the ground. And it's not because it's so large. You don't, you can't fully visualize the whole structure, yeah. just because you know of your perspective. But you get into the into the sky with like a drone or or a satellite, um, and it's it's absolutely magnificent. So I'd love to go there, but um, I guess we're gonna have to take some time off the podcast and hit the road and get out there. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, that'd be, that'd be an interesting thing for the, the future. Who knows what's going to happen? And that it's also birthplace of uh, Albert Nebajira. I didn't know that about his his name. I always just assumed you know, it was just a westernised first one and that was his last name. But that's interesting that uh, how he put that together. We had- yeah, it is quite cool. I think I think it was a good call um, from himself. So his his... Uh, father's anglicized name was uh, Jonathan, which is a bit boring. Um, and I do think it's cool because, you know, there are a lot of cultures around the world that don't have surnames uh, because they just don't need them. Um, and when they do encounter through colonialism or missionaries or however however it happens and was sort of assimilating and customs and things like that quite often it's just you just pick something because it doesn't mean much to you culturally mm-hmm. but i feel like this is one of those times that that didn't happen it did it had a huge meaning to him and it was very very important and as such the actual electorate uh of that district is called namatajira and just oh. outside of Hermansburg, so Hermansburg is sort of on the banks of the Fink River, uh, on the other side of uh, the river from Hermansburg is a small, I would say, sort of like a village, like there's a few houses and, and that sort of stuff. And that suburb is called Namatajira today as well. So. Wow. Albert Namatajira has had a huge legacy in the local area, uh, and rightfully so, as he should, and his family, and, and I'm sure his his descendants and things like that as well. So, it is really really cool. That is that's real that's really interesting. That's uh, I I enjoyed that. Thank you. Not a problem at all. So let's move on. Let's talk about the Victorian Greens, and they want to push for a grocery price freeze. So, Victoria needs to introduce price controls on food and every other day, every day other items <laughs> to combat the rising cost of livings, says the Victorian Greens, despite criticism from economists and the UK abandoning a similar plan earlier this year. We know the Greens aren't good with <laughs> the economy um, and working things out, but hang on. Before I rag too much shit, let me let me continue. The Greens, <laughs> the Greens are threatening to run a fresh cost of living campaign and seek an upper house inquiry into grocery prices just days after failing to convince the then Dan Andrews government to cap the price of rent as part of last week's housing overhaul. The minority party has for months been calling for a freeze a rent freeze, both nationally and in Victoria. But Greens MP Sam Hibbins has denied his party is looking for a new populist catch cry. Do you smell that? That smells like bullshit to me. (laughs) (laughs) Sam said, the rent control campaign is not going away by any stretch of the imagination. People are crying out for direct government intervention. What we're talking about is price controls on food and groceries with a focus on profiteering supermarkets. Uh, 
So whether it relates to our policies on rent or bill freezes, it's entirely consistent with our economic approach. And to be fair, that is true. They are consistent with this sort of thing. Research from Deakin University has found that the price of some supermarket items has increased as much as 40% in the last 12 months. I don't think we needed Deakin research to do that. I think most people understand that some things have gone up, probably more than 40% in some cases. Uh, But by the end of the financial year, food inflation outpaced overall inflation. And like we said earlier, Coles and Woolies have announced profits of $1.09 billion and $1.6 billion, respectively. Tanya Clark, Policy Director of the Consumer Action Law Centre, said she has seen a spike in referrals from Victoria Police because people are resorting to shoplifting to feed their family. People are desperate, she said. Disputes over supermarket prices, but not setting them, have long been the domain of the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, the ACCC. A national watchdog, however, Hibbins argues that Victoria has several powers at its disposal to enforce the supermarket price controls and has done so as recently as the 1980s. His state government could declare groceries a regulated industry, allowing the essential services to commission to set prices. He said, that's bread, dairy, cooking needs, meat and personal care products. Alternatively, they could just introduce their own legislation. Greece, the country, last year forced supermarkets to reduce prices on basic good, basic products, and Hungary, also a country, followed suit. But the UK abandoned their plans for voluntary price controls in June following a backlash from retailers. Though the University of Canberra economics professor Phil Luz said supermarket price controls were never a good idea. He says, it's the sort of thing students learn in Economics 101. Price is determined by supply and demand. If you try to cap the price, it's going to lead to a shortage and the price of other items will go up. It's inflammatory, inflationary for most people. It's inflammatory too. Grattan Institute Chief Executive Danielle Wood agreed. She said, we're much better off offering direct support for the most vulnerable. For example, recent increases to JobSeeker to help manage the cost of living pressures than this heavy-handed form of intervention. Melbourne University Professor Alan Fields, I think it's, yeah, no, I think it's Ellen Fells. Forgive me, Ellen. Uh, former chair of the ACCC also doesn't support direct price controls on milk, bread, and other items. Treasurer Tim Pallas previously accused the Greens of wanting to create a quote-unquote command economy. In other words, reading between the lines, he's calling them communists. Huh. So what did Hibbins say to the naysayers? And I quote, There's going to be those who will say you can't disrupt the market because it is going against economic orthodoxy. But the strategic use of price controls is both an effective and credible tool. The government is stuck in a neoliberal policy straitjacket. End quote. Wow. 
he there he's that's some words said now i'm not going to pretend that i like the greens because i don't and that's very obvious (laughs) (laughs) i i don't think this is a good idea i i think on paper to people that don't understand economic theory i think this sounds like a great idea the problem is the economics behind like food is phenomenally more complicated than I think most people realize. And it's a global issue. The, and that's the key thing. The war in Ukraine isn't happening here in Australia. It is happening in our in our supermarkets, as far as they're concerned, the price controls and the, the global market supply chain for a lot of these things are affected. Even if, it shouldn't, in your mind, shouldn't affect the price of things here in Australia. Because remember, our farmers are uh, dealing in a global market. They're not dealing in an Australian market. Yep. So they, they might sell their... So, for example, what I'm trying to say is, to give you the layperson's, uh, in a nutshell, right? Ukraine and Russia are some of the biggest grain exporters. When we say grain, I'm specifically talking about wheat. Some of the biggest grain exporters in the world. Uh, I think combined they make something like 20% of the grain exports in the entire world, which is huge. Their grain uh, exports have absolutely fallen off a cliff for obvious reasons. As a result, Australian grain is suddenly much more valuable on on the world market. So you go into Coles and Woolies and you look at the price of, I don't know, cereal. Yep. And you go, how the hell is my Cocoa Pops affected by the war in Ukraine or my Special K or whatever it is? This is how it's affected by the war in Ukraine. Because the farmer that grew that wheat, suddenly that wheat's worth a lot more money on the international market. And maybe he's not so incentivized to sell it to Australians and more is incentivized to sell it overseas to people other governments that rely on that grain imports to feed their people. So you see how the the wheels start turning and all of a sudden what you've got is a situation where your local Kellogg's supplied Australian made weedy bix suddenly are a lot more expensive than they were before. And I think this is why the Greens are looking at this going, well, we can just not do that. And it's like, but we live in a country that works as part of the global trade system. And that's incredibly difficult to disconnect yourself from, even temporarily. It doesn't work like that. No, it doesn't. And it it goes, you know, the Ukraine war is uh, just one of the latest in a number of things that have had an impact on the global economy. When we had the uh, COVID and the impact on supply chains there, whilst there's been a lot of recovery, it fundamentally changed uh, distribution centres, where people were locating companies, uh, how ships were moving across the, uh, the, the world in such a way that every time you make it a little bit harder to go from A to B, there's a cost increase. So we've seen the supply cost of uh, supply chains really just rocket up. I I'm, don't quote me on these figures, but uh, you used to be able to have something like a container 
it was something like uh, you'd be able to move a container for 300 bucks. Uh, it's now up around about the, the 2000 mark. As I said, don't quote me on those figures, but it's that order of, of difference just in, in moving something from point A to point B. That all gets passed on in the, the costs. There's also the input costs. Uh, yeah, you said wheat, wheat mix. Okay, fine, that's uh, a, a direct relation. But if you have a look at the ingredients in a lot of products, you'll find that wheat is used in so many extra things. You'll find that soy is going to be used as, you know, as filler or oil. They're all inputs into that product. And we're seeing that as part of the, the general rise in inflation. And we're coming back to that general cost of inflation because of government programs. And we're finding that uh, people's wages, the cost of living, it's not keeping pace with this government manipulated economy because uh, they're not being allowed to, they're not being allowed to uh, keep up with the cost of inflation. They're not being allowed to see wages come up with uh, in, in line with the real cost of living. So it's no wonder that people are feeling the pinch and it's no wonder that the Greens have willing ears on what is essentially a populist message. And I don't blame people for hearing this and saying, yeah, shit, bugger it. That's a good idea. I don't think yes. it's a good idea, obviously. You know, I mean, you, you touched on a couple of things there, but I think it's politically, it's probably a winning um, position to take. And I don't blame anyone for saying, saying that that's what they want to see happen. This is another situation, like the other week when we were talking about the Greens uh, having to go in Queensland. This is another situation where I think the, the Greens party are playing very smart politics. Yep. They're playing to the populist idea of... Because at the end of the day, uh, part of my degree is in economic theory. So I, I, I get this. I see how this works. Mm. Their, their spiel isn't directed for people like me. It's directed for the layperson that doesn't understand exactly what's going on and doesn't really want to know the, the intricate details of the global supply system. Yep. So I actually looked up those global container rates. Um, oh, okay. Yep. Just So this is in US dollars, and it's just like an average of shipping a container from one place to another. It's non-specific, but it's kind of like an average. It'll give you an idea of what we're talking about, though. In September 2019... Uh, you could ship this container for one thousand two hundred and sixty-two US dollars. In September twenty twenty-one, it was ten thousand three hundred and sixty-one dollars. Wow, that's even more. Th yeah, okay. In September twenty twenty-two, it did come down to four thousand and fourteen dollars. And today, I don't have September's figures yet. Uh, but as of August, it was 1,700. So it is coming down, but we're still not back to what it was pre-COVID, pre-Ukraine uh, war. And I don't think it'll come down to what it was simply because the cost of fuel has skyrocketed as well. The, the cost of, of oil has gone yep. up significantly across the world. We all know that. We all feel this. And that yep. was largely kicked off by the war in Ukraine 
it's been exacerbated by other things like OPEC and, and things like that since. Um, but that was a large problem. Uh, and as a result, you know, those those shipping costs haven't really come down. And I think it's this is just uh, ocean going shipping costs, by the way. Yep. Uh, so this is from port to port. So the container getting from wherever it was packed to the port obviously has a shipping cost and from that port to wherever it's being unloaded also has a cost on top of so yep as someone if you're listening to this yeah if you're listening to this and you don't fully understand or or didn't previously quite understand that how this system works and this is global system this isn't just in australia um this starts to give you an idea of how complicated the system works how this has been impacted by what has happened in the world over the last couple of years and why it's not gone back. And I think you've touched on a huge point that's really, really important. The inflation rate in Australia has eroded the value of the Australian dollar, which means those imports, that container coming to our shores, costs a lot more money to import because people don't want to buy... Uh, I'm not going to sell you the product that you want to import from overseas for... I'm, I'm not going to lose money because your your currency has decreased, right? So, so now you owe me more money to get that thing. And then, of course, that snowballs on. And you can see how this just... It does. It snowballs. And before you know it, when you go to buy a bag of chips and there's six bucks a pack and you go, what the actual hell is happening? That's what's happening. Um and it sucks. Yep. And uh, the thing that the uh, thing to always keep in mind too with inflation, because uh, m- media and uh, government likes to s- essentially bamboozle us and say, "Oh, look, you know, the inflation didn't rise as much this year," or "Oh, inflation has actually gone down." We're now only at uh, you know four percent inflation, as if it's a good thing. But one of the things to remember is if you if you think of the, if you take the inflation rate from a few years ago and you say, okay, inflation rate's 5%, then it went to 6%, then it went to you know 4%. The thing is, that's on top of each one. So your thing for 100 bucks went to 105 bucks, and then it went to, oh, I'm getting muck up my maths here, but yeah, then, then it went to something like, you know, 111 bucks, and then it went to 113. So when you actually step back, you might say, okay, we've only got an inflation rate of 3%, but that's this year on top of all the inflation that you've had before. So something that cost 100 bucks, uh, you know, five or six years ago is actually going to be costing you way more than 3% extra because it's cumulative and it's going to be costing you know, like 100, 125 bucks. And it's one of the things that doesn't ever get emphasized. It's a cumulative thing, this rate of in inflation. And most of the uh, in inflation is the fault of the government and central bank policies, monetary and fiscal policies, and decisions made in there. And it's passed on to us, and we're paying the, the, the brunt of it. So that was one of the points that I had down there, we can say that there is a yeah. I probably made it clear that I don't really trust Coles and and Woolies. However, 
they're being demonized. They're being pointed out. It's like, quick, look over there, burn, burn them. And people aren't sort of stepping back and saying, well, hang on a tick. Why are they charging so so much? I mean, if it was a case of, you know, they're, they're just bastards, they'll charge whatever you want, then we'd be paying ridiculous levels of, of prices. But they know that people can only uh, have a certain amount of, of, of pain in the price increase, but they make a good scapegoat. They make something that can be pointed out as, as, as the witch to be burnt rather than saying, well, hang on, let's get to the root cause. Why do we have this inflation? What are the decisions that are being made that is causing these problems that is reflected in the price increases that these supermarkets are then passing on to the consumer? And, you know, I'm not going to get out there and champion them, but I also am a bit loath to get on the uh, demonizer supermarkets one particularly as it's being crafted into a crisis and the suggestion that government is going to get bloody involved in determining the price of our food just just blows my mind. I think it's a little bit of exaggeration to say it's uh, a command economy or wanting to be a command economy. I get the analogy, though. I think you've touched on the perfect way to sum this topic up and this is what uh sam hibbins fails to see sam sits there and says that people are screaming here and i quote people are crying out for direct government intervention no they're not sam at least not here we want the the government did this. <laughs> How about you just leave it alone for a while and see if it goes back to normal? Which, in theory, the we there are inflation deflationary triggers, levers that they can pull, which is what the Reserve Bank of Australia's job actually is to protect the value of the currency, uh, and that is what they're currently trying to do. Obviously. This is a balancing act. You don't want to pull any lever too hard too quickly or otherwise the whole house of cards can fall down. But what I don't want to see happen is someone like Sam Hibbins or any other politician step in. in and as we already previously discussed, the supermarkets themselves, whilst, whilst they are making money, it's not a huge amount of money considering what their, what their actual operating revenue is. Uh, and I don't think it's a good idea to start forcing them into because that has a flow-on effect to a lot of other industries mm -hmm. you know we already heard years ago i remember about hearing uh, the 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 supermarkets were really bad at price uh price setting farmers uh prices on their produce before they had even grown them and there were all these sorts of contracts and the whole thing was terrible we've seen this before because that's what's going to happen again. And then we're going to have a royal commission into to farmer suicides because they're not making any money because they're locked into a price because Woolies can't sell milk for more than $2 a litre. You know what I mean? Like it just spirals out of control. Leave the thing alone. Get the RBA to start deflating the currency, which is what they're trying to do. But, of course, to do that, they have to play with inflation, um, interest rates, and blah, 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 blah. 
if we just leave it for long enough, it will find its equilibrium again. I don't like the idea that the government's going to step in. And because the other thing is as well, and like they haven't actually said this, but I'd love to actually sit down with Sam and ask them, what are you going to put? So he said, and I quote, bread, dairy, cooking needs, meat, and even personal care products. What is that? Is that just everything in Woolies? Yep. It's so broad and vague that it could be anything or it could just be some basic things. We don't know because I don't think they genuinely have a plan. I think they're just asking questions to drum up support. People are going, oh, that sounds like a good idea. And I think most people would agree it sounds like a good idea because there's a lot of really desperate people. I'm not going to deny that. There's a huge amount of desperate people. Yeah, that's um, that's the that's the problem, and that's that's the actual humanity of this. And this is yeah, that's why the I did have a a, a note that you know whilst it doesn't sort of fit in with how I see things, uh, I can't remember who it was that you read out that said uh, rather than going to something like this, maybe we should be looking at uh, increasing direct support. Now that to that was me sounds, that was uh, sorry that was. Uh, Grattan, the Grattan Institute Chief Executive Danielle Wood said that. Okay, I can I can see that there's more humanity in that, and if it, if it was a choice between, uh, do we bump up tax a little bit more to increase direct support, or do we let the government camel put its nose under the the, the tent and start uh, determining prices? I'd be voting for the direct su- support. Uh, because that's that's the bottom line. We're, to, we're talking we're talking about a genuine human uh, aspect to this, which is which is hard to get past. You know, I can be sort of coldly and analytical, but at the end of the day, there's there's people genuinely suffering and thinking, well, shit, how the hell do I fam- feed my family this week when they're seeing their bill just keep going up and up? And it's just becoming a bigger and bigger part of of every every paycheck. Yeah, that's that's. I mean, that's that's the sad part of it. Yes. So I do get, yeah. 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 No, you're exactly right. And it, yeah, look, and I think that's also maybe why I've been a bit harsh on the Greens because I don't see this as them genuinely proposing a way to fix the problem. I see this as they're using people's heartstrings to drum up uh, support for their party. That's how I see this. And I think that's what really rubs me the wrong way yeah. um, because their solution isn't isn't an actual solution. It's going to make things worse. So I look at it and just go, well, they're, they're trying to, they're using this as an excuse to get, to get more votes so that they can win the next election. And that just, that really rubs me the wrong way. But, yeah. I mean, they'll feign innocence. Oh, that's not what we were doing. But that's I see it like a call. I call it like I see it, and that's yep. how I see it. Yeah, it's good politics, though. It is good politics. I'll give it them. That, that they, are, they have been playing really good politics uh, lately, even if I think that's immoral and not the right thing to do. But... That's just that's just how the game is played. Speaking of playing games, <laughs> what's happened this week in Australian history? I come from a la, 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 la. Okay, 
Well, this week in Australian history, we're covering the dates 28th of September to 2nd of October. Uh, September 28th, 1824, John Oxley recommends a new settlement be founded at Brisbane after finding Moreton Bay unsuitable. Uh, 1962, Paddington Tram Depot fire destroys 65 trams in Brisbane. Um, 1969. Not, sorry, it is not a good week for Brisbane. <laughs> no, no, I was just, just, just thinking that. It's not, not, not many ticks there for them. Only 65 trams. That would have been disastrous. That would have been disastrous, yeah. I'm That's not easily were, replaced. No. I'm guessing uh, whilst the rolling stock would have been steel, I'm guessing a lot of the uh, carriage would have been wood or something to be able to get that many. But even the rolling stock probably couldn't be reused. It'd be structurally right. compromised by the fire, most likely. Yeah, good point. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, 1969, a meteorite fell over the Murchison region of Western Australia and a 100 kilogram of rock was recovered. That's uh, cool. I wouldn't be like to be the person trying to catch that. <laughs> you need a really big <laughs> yeah. uh, catcher's mitt out of it. Bloody oath. Uh, September 29th, 1791, the west coast of Australia is claimed, and we could put that in um, inverted commas, claimed by British commander George Vancouver, previously under the east coast had been claimed for the crown. 2007, the Geelong Football Club wins the 2007 AFL Grand Final, and that was their first premiership in 44 years. Um, September 30th, 1804, a government brewery was opened at Parramatta as a means of controlling the consumption of spirits. <laughs> yes, and as we know, government controlling uh, <laughs> particularly things like spirits just works so well. <laughs> 1854, the first game of crickets played at the MCG, the Melbourne Cricket Ground. Uh, 1889, the Palmerston and Pine Creek Railway, narrow gauge railway in the Northern Territory is officially opened. It's interesting as we've we've gone through two ticks town talks and um, histories over the course of the podcast, just the, the, the different railways open up and just what a uh, means of transporting goods and just how important it has been to many places in Australia. Yeah, really, yeah, really, really becomes like the lifeblood. Yep, the lifeblood. the the, the art, arteries of the country, I guess, in a way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nineteen seventy six, Blue Hills, the long running ABC radio serial, comes to an end after thirty two years. Can't say I've ever heard of it. Sorry, not mm. can't say I've ever heard any of it. I have heard of it, but I haven't heard any of it. Uh, and I'm probably not going to bother doing yeah. it either. Let's 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 be honest. Uh, 19, uh, 1982, uh, the Commonwealth Games begin in Brisbane. Okay, so there's a positive for it. Um, October first, moving into October in 1880, the Melbourne International Exhibition was opened at the uh, Royal Exhibition Building in Carlton. Uh, in nineteen. 19- 18, Australian troops captured Damascus. Um, 
1925, Greater Brisbane was inaugurated as a single municipal authority under the Brisbane City Council. Was that 1925? Okay. And in 1981, the National Australia Bank of Australasia and the Commercial Bank of Australasia merged to form the National Australia Bank. 1988, the ALP government of John Kane is narrowly re-elected for a third term in Victoria. Yeah, just bloody scraped in there. 2005, the Bali bombings uh, take place. They killed 23 people, uh, including the three suicide bombers. So what's that, 20 people and three pricks. Um, And injured 129. Um, So four of the the dead and nine of the injured were Australian. think i can't remember whether we'd uh gone into more detail on that in a previous uh week in australian history um, no i don't think we have no because there was a i, I no, i'm not even going to remember his um name one of the guys was responsible for that and it was a real uh a, a, a attack against indonesia and was also targeting australia for uh, or places where there were Australians for uh, as part of their might have been a jihad. I'm not sure of of that uh, whether it was officially declared a jihad or whether it was uh, part of that group's. Um, God, why am I why am I blanking on the name? I should be remembering the name of the group, but a- a- anyway, as a as I said, they fit in the dickhead category. Yeah. Um, Okay, we might might be something that we uh we'll dig into a little bit in the the future. Uh, October second, nineteen sixty four, the Gladesville Bridge uh opened, and this was the world's longest concrete arch bridge at the time. Total length of five hundred and seventy nine meters, which is nineteen hundred feet. A height of forty five meters, and at that stage, longest span uh, of its longest span was 305 meters, uh, which was a thousand feet. Um, so it should be said as well. It's in Sydney. Oh yeah, sorry. Yep. Yeah, thank you very much. So it's it, it's in Sydney. So look, you look at it now. It's look. It's a nice. It's it's a very nice looking bridge. I've walked under it. I've walked over it. It's got a pedestrian thing on the side. So driven over it bloody numerous times because we've got family. Um, not too, not too far from from there, but it is an impressive uh, bridge. So yes, Sydney has a lot of really nice bridges. Now that I think about it, they do. They yeah, do. yeah. Uh, Gladesville Bridge, um, Anzac Bridge. I'm sure there's another one. So yeah. <laughs> That was a joke. What is Sydney Harbour Bridge? <laughs> <laughs> I was wondering you. I was I was leaving it for see if you were saying us, but um. so that, yeah. Look, that rounds out our history, and I'm sure that those blokes on the day that it opened, after all that building, thought, you know what, I feel like a beer. That takes us to our forex bottle top question, and I had a note down here because I when I was when I was putting the uh, doing the the sound on the the podcast and putting the putting the bits together for it last week, I obviously hadn't heard you properly. Um, you made the comment 
that you have trivia on signs that gets changed on roads as you're driving along. And yep. you, you, you said, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure we've all got it. And I heard that back and I thought, hang on, Tick, no, never seen it before. What's the story? Really? Yeah, so Completely new to me. Didn't even know it was a thing. Okay, so maybe it's just a Queensland thing. I, 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 now that you say that, I, I've driven in a lot of, uh, in fact, only the Northern Territory and Western Australia. I have, I've driven in every other state and territory. Uh, I can't think of it anywhere else but Queensland, so maybe it is a uniquely Queensland thing. Uh, but basically, because Queensland is so freaking huge, uh, <laughs> The Queensland State Government put up uh, effectively, like I said, uh, road signs on the side of the road uh, that um, that say they'll have a fun fact. You know, last week's was what do you call a a, a baby echidna? That's what it was, and and then. You'll be driving along thinking, uh, I don't know, and probably three kilometres up the road, there will be the sign. And that oh, will so they, actually, the they do Reg Grundy it? Yep. Ah, so, very good. Yeah, so I think it's important to remember, when I say Queensland is huge, Queensland approximately from the state border at New South Wales to the Tippecate York roughly is, you know, over... 2,300 kilometers or something like that. It's freaking huge. Yeah. So, for our, especially our listeners that are like in Europe uh, uh, and elsewhere in the world, I, I don't think you fully understand how long Queenslanders will drive three hours to go shopping and drive mm. home in the same day. So, there's a lot of long drives that people are doing. And as a result, there's unfortunately, there is a lot of fatigue. Uh, based accidents, uh, people get tired, just want to push on and get home and that sort of stuff. So what the Queensland government did was they thought they had this idea of, well, if we can, um, if we can keep you kind of alert and awake, then perhaps some of this, you know, won't happen as often. And part of that is these trivia questions, and they're always at the same sort of spots. Uh, but the the signs are changed around. So you don't have the same question very often. And they must take them completely away or maybe oh. they move them. They cycle them around because you don't often see the same question. I've never seen the same question twice. Wow, that's a good idea. Yeah, it's such a good idea because sometimes they're quite close within, say, like a kilometre. So you'll, you'll get the question, you'll sort of think to yourself, mm, what could that be? And then and sometimes they're about the local area, so they'll be very specifically about the local area, uh, like a town that you're about to come up to. Um, and so, for example, there was there was a sign, I don't know if it's still there anymore, but there's a little town called Tyro, uh, but it's spelt T-I-A-R-O. So it's a bit of a funny, you look at it and you might not know exactly how to pronounce that. And so one of the questions was, how do you pronounce the town of Tyro? Which, of course, it's spelled out, not said. So further down the road, it'll say the answer is, and it says, you know, it phonetically spells it out. So um, that one I don't think is there anymore. But that, as an example, uh, before you come to the town, it is a very small, like it's a tiny town. Um. Yeah. 
So that is huh. the Queensland Rivia Road Signs. Oh, wow, that's that's really interesting. Didn't even know that was a, a, a thing. And I should for- say as well, they're more common outside of the like metropolitan areas. I don't think they have any like inside the like Brisbane, for example. I don't think they're anywhere there. They're oh, more sure. like yeah. the more remote you go the more common they are because they know people are driving from these big areas to other areas, right? So it's kind of like, you know, if you've left Brisbane this morning, you're eight hours in, here's more trivia to keep you going sort of thing. Yeah. So it, it is quite well planned out. And I would say if, you're out, if you are out on the road and you're feeling a little bit tired, pull over, set the alarm on your phone for, for 15 minutes and and conk out it makes a huge difference just getting that uh just getting a power nap in big fan of a power nap and you know it doesn't really add that much to you to your journey so absolutely 15 yeah. minutes now could mean you arrive safe and sound well yep yeah, yep yeah, exactly okay i'm going to be impressed if you get this uh 4x bottle top question this week how old was the youngest jockey ever to win the Melbourne Cup? <laughs> I've got no idea. <laughs> None at all. This will be a complete guess. But the okay. fact that this is a question suggests to me that this jockey was probably really young or really old. So, obviously, I'm probably going to go the younger oh, side. Right. Yep, yep. Um, because if you say what's the youngest jockey that's ever done it, and then the answer is like fifty-five, you'd be like, "Oh shit, that's weird, right?" Um, yeah. or the counter of that, it was like a three-year-old did it because <laughs> yeah. jockeys are tiny and they look like children, right? So, yeah, um, three. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm gonna say, what age do you reckon you could get? Reliably get a child to do the race, but professional enough that you probably don't suspect it's a child. Because kind of, I can yeah. imagine there's probably a a minimum age requirement or something like that. At least now, oh, you but made, you, you've you've put yourself with t- both of those comments right in the um, the sweet spot. <laughs> okay, so probably. Some kid did it, and at, when they got caught, they changed it so that now there's a minimum age requirement or, or something of that nature. So, um, so how old is how old could you be that you could fake you could fake it and get away with it? I'm gonna say eleven years old. Uh, you, you know what? It, <laughs> This is you're actually you you've 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 actually got it, and I'll tell you why. I'll, I'll tell you why I'm giving that a qualified thing. That was beautifully reasoned, DK. Absolutely, absolutely spot on. The official answer is that he was 13. Okay, but that was because um, the minimum age you could be at that stage, and we're talking in. Um, uh, why am I not seeing this date leap right? Uh, in 1876, at that stage, the uh, minimum age was 13. But the reason that you win is basically he lied. They lied about his age, 
and he was actually 11, oh eight days God. short of his 12th birthday. So <laughs> I am super impressed. <laughs> So well, I thought you were give, I thought you were just going to give it to me, and I was like, "Oh, that's not quite the spirit of the game." But oh wow! So no, I you, was. You, yep you 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 get it. You, you're you're when you were going down, I could hear your wheels turning. I thought, "Oh, he's just so, as I said in the sweet spot." Uh perfect. Uh, look, so he me, was. So he was supposed to be thirteen, but he well, lied. They, they said he was thir- thirteen, and that apparently caused a whole lot of. Uh, speculation about who he was and a whole lot of other things. But there was a – I'd like to read the, the opening uh, paragraph from, from Wikipedia about this. It's, it's, it just gives a good, a good overview and a good little bit of story to, to, to finish off. So the bloke's name was Peter St. Albans, um, the youngest jockey ever to win the Melbourne Cup. He won in 1876 run riding Brisset which is B-R-I-S-E-I-S, at the recorded age of 13. He was actually 11, eight days short of his 12th birthday. His record is unlikely to be beaten as he rode the Melbourne Cup when he was under the stated minimum age of 13. He secured the mount for the three-year-old Brisset after the regular stable jockey could not make the featherweight of six stone and four pounds, 39 kilos. That's Bloody wow. light. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> yeah, I know. That's just ridiculous. Um, before 75,000 people at uh, at Flemington, Brisset, with St. Albans in the saddle, comfortably won by one length in the biggest field at all time. And they have, at four o'clock, the starter released the 33 runners, and they swept down the long Flemington Strait in a thundering rush. Brisset, ridden by what one writer termed, a mere child uh, captured a rare double, the Victoria Race Club Derby and the Melbourne Cup. Shouts and hurrahs <laughs> were heard. <laughs> Hats were thrown in the air, and one excited individual fell on his back in the attempt to do in the attempt to do a somersault. <laughs> the, the boy who rode the winner was carried around the pack and is the hero of the day, reported the Australasian sketcher in eighteen seventy six. Uh, both Peter St. Albans and Brisset have now become racing legends, and Brisset is regarded as one of the greatest mares fold in Australia. So, yeah, it was a, it even had a good little story be- behind it. So, well, <laughs> well done, DK. Super oh, wow. impressed by that. Good on wow. you. Wow. Well, I figured, you know, jockeys are so small. 11's got to be the limit. In 10-year-old, nah, they don't have the maturity. But you, you were... He was almost twelve, so. Um, but he was eleven, so uh, you got it. Technically, technically, was still eleven, so that's fantastic. Well, thank you ah. so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the R slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please get in touch with us on the R slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. We'd also be grateful if you could subscribe, give us an honest review as it helps us out immensely. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at R slash Australian, we are Australian. Thank you so much. And don't forget to tell your mum that I love her. See you, TK. <laughs> Good night.